0: Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with award-winning journalist and digital media strategist Randy Ryland. He also is a contributing writer about innovations for the Smithsonian.com. We talk about the emergence of the use of artificial intelligence in the healthcare system. He discusses some of the creative ways AI can help both patients and healthcare professionals. Randy, you and I talked about artificial intelligence uh, once before. and in that, we talked about the artificial intelligence in the context of the judiciary and police. Today, I want to talk a little bit about it in relationship to medicine and and health-related aspects. But let's start off and define artificial intelligence. those people who still think that's an alien term?
1: Just a a simple definition of it. It's the ability of machines to uh, gather enormous amounts of data and analyze it and identify patterns in that data and uh, hopefully draw some conclusions. Uh, The goal was to draw some conclusions from that data and do it at a a much uh, faster pace than humans could and be able to handle a much, much greater volume of data than humans possibly could.
0: Hearing your definition of artificial intelligence, it sounds totally different from virtual reality or augmented reality that we hear so much about in today's news. Do I have that right?
1: That's correct, that's correct. Uh, it's, it's basically, and I'm oversimplifying it, but it's basically the ability of machines to learn and think uh, after they gather tons of data and analyze that data. And that's very different from changing reality. It's it's basically processing and drawing conclusions from data.
0: Now, we talked about this once before, and we talked about it in the sense of law enforcement and the judiciary, and at that point, uh, it was not a hundred percent. It was getting close, but it it really was not a great predictor. Uh, how can we feel confident that this is going to do better in the medical fields?
1: Well, it it uh, one distinction is that generally the data that it's consuming. Is data that um, well let me give you an example often it will uh, analyze medical images so these could be MRIs or CAT scans and it learns from doing that uh, and so it's taking what could be seen as strictly
0: objective data one of the issues with uh, predictive policing
1: is uh, a bias that might be uh, part of the development of the algorithm the data that they built the algom- algorithm around was based in part on uh, biases of police officers of those sort of things. That isn't necessarily the case here in many cases because you're, it's, uh, it's making its conclusions. Machines are making their conclusions based on, on statistics and data.
0: This uh, has, I, my mind is racing, has so many possibilities in in the medical field, right? Because what it would be doing, and this is oversimplified, we'll get into more detail in a moment, but it, it takes large data sets from hundreds and thousands of patients and comes up with norms from that correct and it right. and it that's does right. that and in, in so much faster than we could ever humanly possibly do this
1: exactly exactly and that's that's one of the benefits uh, and, and again when you talk about for instance in radiology uh, it uh, artificial intelligence systems and algorithms have been developed that allow very uh, uh, accurate and quick analysis of MRIs and and uh, and tumors um, and and allow uh, uh, people to do diagnosis much more quickly.
0: So you don't have, as the patient, that long, terrible wait. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean it'll probably be a wait, but
1: you know this this certainly speeds it up. And you're also, to your point from before,
0: you're taking data that's been gathered
1: from hundreds of thousands of people, and again, uh, going back to the point that I made before, uh, recognizing patterns and being able to say, okay, based on what I know about this, uh, this is what this condition is, and this is what the situation is, And, and that's essentially how it works.
0: And this can be done in a, a sense of, it, let's just take a, a cancerous tumor or a tumor. Uh, it, one application of this, correct, is that it can look at the aggressiveness of this particular tumor based upon all the other tumors or uh, a database of the other tumors that look near or like this one?
1: Yes, it it allows for, and this is a a little bit more in the future, but it's certainly the goal. It allows for more personalization of cancer treatment where uh, it can be established that your particular tumor or one's particular tumor uh, is similar to uh, another person's in a, a different situation, but here's the treatment that they were given and here's what was most effective. And so... We can zero in on your treatment based on what we've been able to establish about the tumor. Now, the other advantage is that uh, the the thinking is that you'll be able to do what they refer to as virtual biopsies. You won't have to go through the process of a biopsy. Uh, They can just make determinations based on the images that they get. And and so that won't be necessary to go through that,
0: you know, the unpleasantness of, of having a biopsy done. And anybody who's had (laughs) prostate cancer and gone through a prostate biopsy, they'll they'll know uh, how, or any biopsy, uh, know how difficult sometimes uh, that is. Also, uh, if you look at some kinds of tumors, uh, they've been staged over history, but humanly Mm -hmm. staged, Uh, not stage one, stage four, but even uh, grading of the tumor, whether it's a, a 4 or 5 or 6 or 9, uh, for example, as to its severity or aggressiveness. this And that's not guesswork. That's based on the science that is. But what I'm hearing you say is that science can be so much more refined and the predictability be so much better. Yeah,
1: that's absolutely the, the case. And I think, you know, what we're talking about here is a, a potentially a, a much higher level of precision and, and being able to diagnose and, and again to uh, subsequently personalize the treatment based on the precision of that diagnosis.
0: Now, we've heard over the last few years, and and I know you keep abreast of all things medical, but we've heard over the last few years of um, immune uh, treatment for uh, tumors, using your own immune system to treat certain tumors in, in certain kind of cancers. Uh, sometimes currently that works. Sometimes it doesn't. And again, I don't want the audience to think that I'm saying this is guesswork. It's not. It's based on the science that is in existence now. But there would be greater predictors, correct, of what might work and what and how that might have to be tailored for a particular person or a particular tumor? Yes,
1: that's the thinking. And uh, I'll I'll get into Uh, Maybe later I can get into the whole project that IBM has done with Watson. Uh, They've gotten into contracts with a number of cancer centers. And the intent was to have the supercomputer, you know, the supercomputer Watson, uh, analyze essentially, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but all the research, all the records, all the studies that have been done on cancer, and and be able from that to be able to uh, – do exactly what you're saying to uh, zero in on what treatment would be best for you, based on all the research that's been done. Now that has been it hasn't quite been as effective as they promised, at least so far. But uh, you know that's something we can talk about in a little bit later. Just the uh, sure. the, the whole notion of uh, somewhat unrealistic expectations at this point. But that was IBM has invested very very heavily. In with that specific purpose, that they're going to use these supercomputers and the artificial intelligence that they've developed in them to be able to make cancer treatment so precise and so personalized that it will will change everything in terms of how it's
0: treated. Let's talk a little bit, if we can, about record-keeping, because I know anybody who's been through... The healthcare system as a patient. Uh, they, they get frustrated with having to go over every bit of your history, every bit of your medications, all of this. And it's getting better. But as I understand, artificial intelligence uh, really will help that process of medical record. I mean, keeping. As
1: you indicated, it's, it's something that physicians really... Uh... Uh, electronic records are something that physicians really don't like much at all. Uh, it, it takes a lot of their time. The systems, at least initially, were developed in such a way that it's, it was very difficult to uh, gather the data that you wanted. Um, and it also resulted in the situation that many of us have experienced where. You're sitting and talking to your doctor and he and she is tapping on their computer, you know, tapping in, into your records, as opposed to really having a conversation. Uh, and, and so what, what uh, artificial intelligence will allow you to do uh, when it comes to electronic records is to organize them in such a way that it, it pulls out the data for you make them much easier to use. And then there's there's actually uh, been discussion of a system where um, it records the conversation that a doctor and a patient has and, and then transcribes that and then takes the information and on its own enters it into your records. Uh, and so it kind of takes the doctor out of that as much as they want to be out. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's a really, it's an important step. You're not going to get rid of electronic. You're not going to go back to the old days when the doctor was just scribbling down notes. That's never going to happen again. <laughs> and, in
0: and in bad handwriting.
1: exactly. <laughs> so electronic records are here to stay, but you know, they need to make them more useful and, and, uh, you know, uh, less daunting for, for physicians to use. And one other thing that's, um, that they need to work on, and I think in some cases they're, they're making progress on this, is that you have many more people using um, Fitbits or or sensors or uh, uh, medical mobile apps. And that data ideally should be able to go directly into your medical records. Um, but in many cases it doesn't. Uh, and, and that's, you know, it, so someone has to enter into your medical records, and that's a pain. So the, the goal will be, and this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm sure is it's already happening to some degree, where that data can go directly into the records. And, and uh, you know, the, the health professionals won't have to spend as much time dealing with that aspect of their jobs.
0: It also, I I assume, would aid in accuracy. Yes, in the sense that uh, if I go into my general uh, physician, or, or even a specialist, and and I'm supposed to have exercised X amount, the patient always exaggerates because they want to please the doctor, and so they said, "Oh, of course, I've exercised five times a week, uh, an hour a day," and and when they haven't done any of that, the doctor has no way of verifying that and works sometimes under false premises. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, that's that's right. And and actually, when you go out a little bit farther, uh, you're probably aware of smart pills, which basically are pills that uh, we'll take one day that have sensors in them. And the sensors will be able to, uh, again, I'm simplifying, send a message out to let a physician know that you're actually taking your meds. Um, and and that would be something that ideally would go right into your, your electronic record. So it would track uh, electronically when you're taking your meds and how you're taking your meds. And if you're following, you know, the regimen you're supposed to follow.
0: Now, some people out there I know are listening to this and they're saying, I thought medical records were supposed to be private and now that we're making all of these electronic and it becomes part of, of big data, we're we're getting rid of our privacy and our our medical situation is becoming known to the universe. Uh, is that a valid fear?
1: Well, I think it's it is a valid fear from the standpoint of Uh, people just worrying about their privacy in general when it comes to anything with the internet right now. Um, I I think Mm -hmm. that there are ways that it can be protected, uh, that your medical records can be protected. And it's not like, you know, there'll be easy access to this material, but it is hospitals certainly have to think a lot more about uh, developing secure systems. And, And before, you know, the old days, okay, just change your password. That's, that's no longer sufficient. Um, so it is a legitimate concern, but I think I was talking to someone the other day and they, they had mentioned that they think that uh, there's a generational aspect to this, which I found interesting. Their, their take was that millennials really don't care what you know about them. <laughs> and, and, and I thought that was kind of a, you know, I, I was, Uh, surprised to hear, not surprised to hear that, but I thought it was an interesting observation. He seems to feel that people will be less concerned about uh, uh, others uh, having some awareness of, of, you know, your medical situation. Now, it gets more complicated when you talk about uh, insurance companies having access to this information. Right. Uh, and, And so, for instance, getting back to that smart pill example. So should insurance companies have access to that to find out if you're taking your meds? And if you're not taking your meds, does that affect if your coverage, you know, does it affect what they cover? Um, these are a lot of the issues that are coming up now. Uh, and I think as we talked about this before, uh, one of the key things about artificial intelligence or any technology for that matter is usually the the ethical questions come later, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, right. they, they create the, the tool, they create the process, uh, they they do these great innovations, and then people start asking questions like, well, what does this mean, and how should we use this, and who should have access to this? So these are all, all issues that are coming up now. Um, and as, uh, getting back to your original point, as it's easier to gather this information, um, that uh, there need to be... Uh, there needs to be much more focus on how to protect it, uh, and, and make sure that you determine who will have access to it. That it's not just, um, largely right now, uh, individuals are, you know, they're just kind of, uh, uh, they're in the middle of the process between health insurers and, and your physicians. Um, but right. they don't play a major role. The, the thinking that is in the future, that individuals, patients will
0: have complete control over all their medical information and they will determine, they will be able to determine who will have access to it. And it's kind of moving in that direction, but there are a lot of, a lot of hurdles that need to be cleared. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next, educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. To get back to some of the more fascinating, I think, aspects of what is possibly on the horizon, one of the things that uh, really struck me was how artificial intelligence can spread modern medicine to third world countries. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah.
1: um, I mean, one of the issues, and and it's not just third world countries when you think about rural america i mean there's a there there are a lot of issues there with hospitals closing and there being a, a decline in the number of doctors and and the whole idea uh of treating people in remote areas is making use of of uh devices and whether it's apps or or other or sensors or those sort of things where you can um Actually, uh, uh, track and monitor people in areas who may not have easy access to a hospital or a physician. Um, and and uh, you know, one one specific example is that uh, uh, there's a one of the well, for starters. Diabetes rates tend to be higher in rural areas, um, and I'm just talking about in America in this case, because that's what I know about.
0: That's um, Yeah, that's true.
1: And, and so with that, so is uh, uh, vision loss related to diabetes. And, and there is has recently been, actually it was last spring, the FDA approved a process where a person can go into their doctors and, and basically have... Uh, A photo taken of the retina. And from that, it will be able to tell you if you're okay or if you need to see a specialist. And so it's something where uh, in in places where you don't have access to eye doctors, you can actually get this as part of your yearly physical and determine, okay, do I need to take the step, the next step and go to an eye doctor? Um, and And it's a way of you know, uh, it's, a, it's an early warning system. And, and that really applies to a lot of remote areas, too, where um, the ability to give people access to information uh, and also uh, being able to monitor them from a distance. Um,
0: and, diagnose and diagnose from exactly, a distance.
1: Exactly. And, 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 you know, this will provide those opportunities in many, many cases, um, uh, there are, uh, another example, uh, there, there are apps that have been created, uh, devices that have been created that where you can take a photo of, let's say a mole on your skin that looks odd and it can analyze it and, and make a pretty good determination whether or not it's cancerous. Um, and that's just from a photo. And, and that goes back to that whole thing we talked about before, the whole process of these machines looking at hundreds of thousands of photos of, of uh, you know, skin cancer and being able to identify it from that. Now that's getting a little off about from what you were saying about, you know, uh, treatment in remote areas. But there are many, uh, an increasing number of ways to do this kind of diagnosis from uh, from far away. and And the whole use of of telemedicine, telemedicine ties into it. Uh, I, I, I read another case where there's a, um, a company, I think in the Netherlands that created a, uh, like a sticker that you put on your skin and it, it, it constantly measures your, uh, blood sugar and, and sends it directly to the doctor, uh, or to, you know, a care center. And, and, uh, so there's, you know, so many of those things are developing now, and I think it's going to make such a big difference in areas where you don't have access to regular medical care or you don't have a hospital that's that's readily
0: accessible. Or if you have a general practitioner only, and uh, it would certainly be able to link that general practitioner with the specialist and the patient for a quicker diagnosis. All too often in rural areas, you go into a GP, uh, and they get you into a specialist, but you got to wait six weeks, two months to get into the specialist. Right. Uh, and this would be a much quicker turnaround, at least for some preliminaries. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, that's one of the one of the things that people are predicting about the uh, the value of artificial intelligence in healthcare is you'll have a lot more interaction. Among uh, doctors uh, of different specialties, and because it makes, to your point, it makes it a lot easier to do. Um, you're just you're exchanging this information, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the legwork, the diagnostic legwork, is being done by machines.
0: A couple other areas that really struck me. One was the um, maybe you can talk about the whole area of uh, antibiotic resistance. Uh, we're becoming more and more resistant to antibiotics that used to be the quick fix uh, for things. But artificial intelligence has a role in that as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, looking at um, uh, doing analysis of uh, who is going to be more likely to respond to, to treatment um, where, uh, where there have been issues where uh, an antibiotic treatment hasn't been effective anymore. I mean, uh, again, it goes back to that whole idea of uh, tracing patterns and from that being able to say, okay, this isn't working because um, we've seen this in uh, another case or another place. Um, And, uh, and that whole idea, it can, it, it can set up the red flags, you know, when, um, Uh, you start to uh, uh, recognize that there may be uh, uh, a particular antibiotic is is ineffective. And if you have this occurring in five different cities, it may take a long time before that information is really exchanged. But here you you have the ability to analyze that and say, okay, whoa, we have a trend here and we've spotted a pattern here. And
0: based on that, we need to take some steps related to this one other area and this is going to sound far-fetched perhaps to to many of our listeners but use of artificial intelligence to unify mind and machine through brain computer interfaces now that sounds long-winded but but basically this is a way to help people speak who can't speak right
1: or use their limbs you know perhaps they've had a stroke or they've had uh some spinal cord damage and the idea is uh again oversimplifying but the idea is to connect your brain uh, uh you know the the ability to stimulate movement or have speech through your brain but connect those neurons to uh, machines uh, and, and so it might be able to uh, use a, have movement in a prosthetic hand. And you do it directly through, you know, your own brain. Um, uh, and I think part of it, too, the, the artificial intelligence part of it is the, the learning that comes with that. Over time, the, the machine that's involved learns about your behavior. And it can start to adjust to your behavior based on that. Um, and, and this is still in the fairly early stages, but there's, you know, people are pretty confident that, uh, it will allow, I mean, I, I, I read, uh, not long ago about a doctor who was saying, you know, we'd love to be in a situation where someone who was not able to speak when they came into the hospital on Monday will be able to talk to us on Tuesday using this sort of treatment. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's remarkable when you think about it, but it's really tapping directly into the brain, um, and, and using the brain to, uh, connect to machines that will do the, the work that your body can't do because those connections have been lost for whatever reason.
0: And, and that, that would apply to, to people, uh, who, who have sort of this locked in syndrome with, uh, uh perhaps strokes as you mentioned or ALS yeah. or other things where they they they're trapped in their own body and that's my lay term but uh I think people get the message and this will allow them to communicate but through their brain right exactly so you were talking earlier about Watson and I want to get back to that before we finish and let me ask, in this context, what about the, um, the companies that are putting a lot of effort and a lot of money? Obviously, IBM is one of them. Uh, what are they doing beyond just what you mentioned on Watson? And what are some other companies doing? Um, well,
1: you know, a lot of them are doing uh, research with sensors. Um, and and gathering data through the use of sensors and and much of it is uh, whether it's through sensors or wearables that's a whole notion of being able to gather data directly from the person and have it sent to uh, whether it's their their health rec their medical records or or directly to a doctor and there's a lot of research in that regard Um, there there's also Uh, a a good deal of research in how just how you can crunch all this data, an enormous amount of data, and how you can make that useful. And I I just heard, I was talking to some researchers uh, at Northwestern the other day, and and they've come up with uh, a process where you can do a blood test, um, and from that blood test, you'd be able to tell how far your body clock is from real time. Um, and, and the way they did it is they as part of the research process for them. They went through, uh, they, they took blood from a number of patients pretty frequently during the course of the day. They gathered all this blood and then they analyzed, I think it was something like, uh, 20,000 different, uh, genes. And, and from that, they identified 40 genes in your body that are most connected to your circadian rhythms, and, wow. and and from that, they've been able to develop an algorithm that can say, okay, I uh, I take your blood, and we do this blood test, and it tells me that you're three hours off uh, from from what the real time is. Wow. And and that may sound, you know. So what are you going to do with that? Well, there are a number of things. One in terms of It's uh, it can better determine when is the best time for you to take medications. Um, You know, a lot of time for most of us, it's like, well, take them with me or take them before you go to bed. Well, that doesn't always apply to everyone. And so this can be much more precise about that. And it also can um, uh, help identify if your circadian rhythm is off. Uh, there's been uh, certainly correlations made to the development of different diseases, uh, diabetes, Alzheimer's. And, and so the sense is, if they can determine this in an earlier time, they might be able to, It's again, an early warning. So uh, that's a case where, you know, you're using, you're, you're crunching all this data. And from that, you're developing a process that becomes a, a diagnostic tool.
0: Wow, and and more companies than just IBM obviously are into this. This is the the wave of the future. This isn't sci-fi. This is uh, tomorrow.
1: Yeah, this is. I mean, you know, you have to deal with. Uh, you know, there are there certainly are hurdles, and and one is you're dealing with a, a a medical establishment. You have made up of people who have gone through years and years of training and have years and years of experience, and not. Uh, you know, understandably, they can bristle at uh, a machine saying, uh, "Well, here's what I'm diagnosing here." Um, and, yeah. and so, one of the challenges is finding the most effective ways for humans to work with machines, as opposed to being replaced by machines. And and you know, where do who's who has what role when? Um, and and I think that's that's one of the things we're working through now. Um, but there's you know, you you get to the whole thing of high expectations and getting back to the IBM Watson thing. um, They, you know, there was this, a promise that we're going to be able to do this, uh, provide this level of of personal cancer treatment personalization. And one of the things they really didn't take into account was when they were gathering data um, that there's a, a, a medical language Language that, that doctors use and health professionals use acronyms, those sort of things that the computers, you know, the machines couldn't figure out what they were talking about. And so the result is that in some cases, uh, uh, and these are hypothetical cases, they haven't been real people sure. at this point. But in some cases, uh, Watson has made a, you know, made some inaccurate diagnosis. Um, and, and so part of it is uh, there's a lot of promise there. There are certainly, uh, there, there's great progress that can be made through this, but I think there also is a sense that you can run away with this. I mean, you can say, okay, this is going to be able to do this, this, and this, and, and it's just never that simple. Um,
0: I, I'm, I'm thinking of one area that is problematic in our region and everywhere uh, is the, the um, monitoring of uh, pain. And chronic pain and ongoing pain, and tailoring medications specifically to uh, arrest that pain without abuse. Right. Uh, it it seems like there could be potential for uh, solving part of that problem with with uh, this kind of data.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of hope that that can be done, and there's research being done in that regard where it. You know, again, when you're talking about the personalization of treatment, you can say uh, what we know about your condition, your your medical history, and uh, about the symptoms that we've been able to analyze. Uh, this is the best treatment for you, and it's not just a case of I write you a script for a, you know a lot of painkillers in perpetuity. You know, right? Uh, and and I think that that is uh, the idea that there will be more precise ways to deal with things like chronic pain um, and also allow people to to get back to your point you made before people who are in remote areas to be able to communicate directly uh, with their with their physicians through telemedicine in some way uh, or with a care center so that they can get pain treatment when they really need it um, you know I, I talked to a someone, uh, running a care center in Kentucky. And they said that if you, in many cases, people in chronic pain, they'll say in the morning, it feels like three and oh, it'll get better. But at night it's the pain is at a level of eight or nine. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, her point was if we're monitoring throughout, uh, that person won't end up in the ER, you know, maybe we can get them get a uh, nurse practitioner or someone there to help them before they have to go to the ER. So, you know, it's a long, long answer to your question, but I think there's, there's a lot of potential in dealing with uh, issues like chronic pain and how you treat it.
0: Well, Randy is always fascinating. And I hope we can come back to you as this uh, whole area emerges even further. And it seems like every day there's something new. And we want to keep track of it. It's my
1: pleasure, Tom. Thanks for asking me to participate. I appreciate it.
0: Today, we've been talking with digital media strategist and award winning journalist Randy Ryland about the emerging role of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. WOUB has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. On Lifespan, we hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system. Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, being a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. Subscribe to this new podcast. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or at the NPR Podcast Directory.